Um, it's really great to be with you guys. I, I love this church. Um, we visited here with the DTS team, Discipleship Training School outreach team years ago. Uh, Jeff Starr brought uh, your youth group down and I was just telling him that was a catalyst for actually a, a season of revival with a, a youth group that we started. It was an all kind of an inter-church youth group that we ran there on the Mendocino coast that just saw amazing things happen. And, uh, and, and uh, it's just been so exciting to see uh, uh, Jason and, and Sarah and the Haig family, um, the way you guys helped them through just a really difficult uh, season in their lives and to come out into such a, a wide place of blessing and fruitfulness, you know. And uh, it's fun to see uh, Janae again and, and then Doug Easterday that I think I've known my entire adult life and has had such an investment into me at just different times as he came and taught in YWAM schools that I was uh, staffing and uh, just his patience with me when I was a, a young zealous Turk that thought he had everything figured out. You know, with long hair, he says, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's just great. It's a privilege to be with you. I, I love this church and I, and I just love what I've heard about it. It was great going out with uh, uh, Joshua and Karen uh, last night and hearing about all this stuff that's going on here right up to this week, the fasting you were doing and, um, and just all the, the, the activity that happens out of this church. So uh, what I'm going to be sharing today, I, in some ways I'm kind of going to be preaching to the choir, um, which is really always the thing to do. I've, I've found that in the, the key to success in the leadership is to find out what people already want to do and then tell them to do it. And, uh, <laughs> but but so really, I, I, you know, but this really is true. You know, I see you guys as already moving in a certain direction, already modeling and, and implementing a lot of the principles I'm going to be sharing. So I'm really hoping that this will just both encourage you in the direction you're already going in, um, but also empower you and, and, and give, you, uh, um, give you new vision for, for, for running further and faster um, with some of the principles that, that you already have. And so I'm going to be telling a story today, and, and I've chosen this story partly because it's fresh for me. It's, this is a book I've been reading called The Celtic Way of Evangelism. Have any of you read this book? Um, so I'm, I'm going to be plagiarizing freely from this book and also adding in some stuff that, that resonates that I've, I've seen from my own life. And I'm going to be telling you a story from history. You're going to get a little bit of a, a kind of a history lesson. And, uh, and, but the reason I'm doing that is because... Uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we've uh, been taught, um, something I've learned in this last season of life, is about the prophetic dimension of the testimony. That we, we can actually, um, uh, how, do, how do I say, we can jumpstart revival, we can jumpstart the supernatural, we can raise the level of faith in a situation which also then um, increases God's activity in a situation. I mean, we rem that... That's not diminishing the power of God. Jesus himself on this earth could do no miracles in a certain location because of unbelief. So you have the power to shut down God's power with, with something real simple called unbelief. Now, I lo also love what it says. It says he could do no miracles there except lay his hands on the sick and heal them. You know, that was all he could do. Um, so, yeah, so that's not absolute. God's still big. Um, even in a, in, a, in a situation with unbelief, we can still move, and, and, and we, even when there isn't a wave, we can start the wave. Um, but our level of expectation, what we already know is possible and are 
looking for and reaching for and seeing from afar is part of, of the process of God doing something wonderful. And uh, many revivals were started because uh, people that were in a place that was in drought, spiritual drought, wrote to somebody and just started corresponding. This is, and we're talking about snail mail, pieces of paper going back and forth through the mail, and corresponded with people who were experiencing revival and, and as a result experienced revival themselves. That's how the Azusa Street revival um, started, the most revolutionary uh, movement probably in the history of the world, um, led by a, a, a son of Louisiana slaves, a one-eyed black man, um, at a time when there was still a curfew in Los Angeles, he couldn't go out after 11 o'clock at night, and he led the revival that um, accounts for 70% of church growth worldwide today. So uh, there's no way to overstate or overestimate the significance of, of what he did there. That's not what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be going about a millennium and a half ago. And the reason I'm cho choosing this story and the reason this is resonating with me so much when we came back um, from, by the way, it says I have 25 minutes. Did your introduction come out of my 35 minutes? I just want to file a protest if your introduction came out of my 35 minutes. Um, the, but when we came back from, uh, from the Muslim world, having planted, uh, pioneered YWAM's work in, the, in a, a Muslim country in the former Soviet Union, um, that had been doubly closed for a period of years under communism and under uh, Islamic culture, and then was doubly open because when the Soviet Union fell, they just wanted anything, everything that they'd been locked away from, they wanted it. And, uh, and so there was a freedom and an openness to, to, to share in that early season. Later on, we had to be much more careful and go slower. Um, but anyway, we were there for about 14 years. We successfully planted uh, a work there that continues on. It's mostly uh, being carried on by the, the Muslim background nationals um, that are working in church planning and mercy ministry and um, even sending out missionaries to places like Iran and Turkey and, uh, and, other, and surrounding countries. So it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, when we came back here to the United States, one of the things that, that hit me so, so vividly. It was partly because when you live outside the country and you come back every couple of years for just a month or two or three, you start, it's kind of like a time-lapse photo. Have you seen the time-lapse photos of like nature? They'll show it. So over like, you know, 30 seconds, you watch a flower bloom or you watch uh, the seasons change on a landscape and it goes from a fall, you know, from summer green to fall colors to winter, you know, that time-lapse photo. Well, that's what you get when you're living overseas and coming back. And I was, it was pretty shocking to see the slide in our culture over that period of time and has continued to be, uh, I think, if anything, it, that the, the pace has accelerated. And, and so it was just so vividly, I was so vividly aware that we were living in a post-Christian culture. Um, and, and that our, our, the way people thought was different than the way it used to be, and that the rising generation um, had a whole different set of values. And uh, it wasn't all bad news, but it was, it was really, really different, and uh, a, a huge shift was taking place. The other thing that, that I realized as, I, as we were visiting churches and, and meeting Christians is that the culture inside the church was two, three, or maybe three generations out of step with the culture outside the church. 
Now, what that meant is people inside the cult church were literally culturally different than the people outside the church. So, if, and, and, and then the next step to that, what was so clear to me as, as a missionary coming off the field, off of a foreign cross-cultural frontier evangelism setting, was America is that. America is a cross, the, the church in America is facing a cross-cultural missionary challenge. And that's not bad news. I've got great faith for cross-cultural missionary challenges. But if you think that what the challenge you're facing is near neighbor, near, near neighbor evangelism, um, you're going to be frustrated. If you think that the challenge you're facing is, um, is simply um, trying to uh, head, you know, um, build a little hedge around what remains of, of the Christian inheritance so that you can retain that, um, you're, you're fighting a losing battle. Um, we, we in the North American church need to face the, the uh, grim fact and the hopeful fact that we face a missionary challenge. And that's okay, but you gotta, we've got to start thinking like missionaries. And so the story, I mean, that's kind of almost been, been kind of a theme of when I'm with churches is trying to get them to think like a missionary. Missionaries learn a language. Missionaries are learners. Um, a missionary knows that the only people that can tell him how to reach the people he's trying to reach are the people he's trying to reach. They're the ones you've got to learn the language from. They're the one you've got to get inside their head and understand how they think. You've got to ask, answer the questions they're actually asking, and you've got to meet the felt needs. Do you know what a felt need is? A felt need is different than the real need. The real need, as you deem it, is the need you see that they need. And you might be right or you might be wrong, okay? But it's, that's the need you think they need. The felt need is the thing they think they need. And it could be something very urgent like they're hungry and they need food. Um, it could be that they're, it could be a very spiritual thing. They're afraid of demons. They're harassed by demons and, and they need a good night's sleep because they they're tormented by night, demonic nightmares. Um, whatever that felt need is, if you'll set aside what you think is the real need and address the felt need, in the power, power of Jesus, um, they're going to be wide open for you to address what you think they really need. And, uh, and so we've got to start thinking like that in, in North America. So um, how do I do? Okay, there we go. So Paul understood this. Um, Paul was, was a wonderful missionary, and, and the first generation apostles completely understood this. And of course, we only, we mostly know Paul's lesson, but history tells us about amazing things happen. Thomas seems to have evangelized India. Um, otherwise, how do you account for this enormous Christian church there that traces itself back to, to St. Thomas? And uh, Andrew went to a group called the Anthropophagi. Now, it sounds really like, you know, intellectual, but what it literally means is the people eaters. So these are the cannibals that were somewhere on the edges, fringes of the Roman occupation, and, and Andrew went and, and evangelized the anthropophagi, the people eaters. Um, so they understood this. They, they went all out. And this is Paul's uh, description of his, his heart ethos. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, so now he's talking about the Gentiles. Um, outside the law, I became as one outside the law, 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Um, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So in other words, my cultural preferences, my, uh, my, my heritage, all of that is on the line. I can have my preferences. You know, we know that he, he loved the Jewish people, and yet he was willing to go to the Gentiles and live like a Gentile among them and defend their right to come to Christ without becoming Jews. Um, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And uh, so that was Paul's heart. And I really think we have to more fully embrace that missionary heart. So I want to talk about a guy named St. Patrick. Or you can just, if, if that sounds too Catholic to you, just call him Patrick. Um, he was, he was uh, a real person. I was telling somebody about this the other day. They were, it was a Christian. He was at, we were, he was, we were having a discussion. I said, yeah, I've been really inspired by the example of, the, of Celtic Christianity and, and St. Patrick. He said, oh, really? I said, I don't know anything about This was actually a fairly real intelligent guy, and he, well-read guy. But he said, I, th- I thought he was just like a, a myth of leprechauns and stuff. So, um, so that's what we picture with, uh, with St. Patrick, you know. And St. Patrick's Day is actually the, the most widely celebrated national holiday in the world. It's celebrated all over the place, and we pinch people that don't wear green and all that stuff. Um, but Patrick is not a legend or a fable. Um, if, uh, he, he actually was a, an amazing apostle that, um, that evangelized Ireland, and from Ireland, his people, after his life, life, lifetime, evangelized most of Western Europe. Um, it's an amazing story. Um, now, there's a lot of legend that grows up around Patrick because he's, he was, did live such, such a supernatural life that then there, you know, it's hard to separate what were the legitimate accounts of the signs and wonders from the, the stories that were told. Now, we do have some of his writings, so some of it we, we know, unless he was lying, which I don't think he was, um, we know that he lived a supernatural life because we have some of his writings that people don't dispute, but that doesn't mean we have to accept every legend about him. Um, one of the legends is that, that there, he drove the snakes out of Ireland. It's a legend about him. And as a matter of fact, there are no snakes in Ireland. Now, scientists would say there never were snakes in Ireland. And it's interesting, even Wikipedia agrees with me on this. It's something I've always suspected, is that this story about driving the snakes from Ireland is actually an allegory or a, um, is kind of representative of what actually did happen, is that he drove something way more scary than snakes out of Ireland, the Druid priesthood. The Druid sorcerers um, that controlled Ireland um, that, that were, it was a, a demonic, uh, very, very powerful form of sorcery, and it also had political control, um, that he, in one generation, drove the Druids out of Ireland. And so a lot of people think that this legend about driving the snakes out is actually telling that story. Um, the whole thing of shamrocks, you know, that three-leafed clover-like like plant, um, uh, probably the reason that's such a, an important symbol is that uh, he would use that to explain the Trinity. And this is something Patrick did, is he connected with the people's love for nature, love for, for natural creation, and he would use natural creation. He wasn't afraid of it. They were animists. Um, they worshipped trees. They worshipped the spirits in nature. But he didn't let that make him react to the other way. He entered into their culture and used images from nature to illustrate it. And probably the shamrock was one that he was using because he was, he was very Trinitarian. Um, 
A couple things that, that, are, that are mythical or legendary is he wasn't Irish. That's kind of interesting. Um, he was actually a British, uh, ro culturally Roman British um, from, from what's now England. Uh, he wasn't Catholic in the way we think about Catholic. And there's a lot of ways we can see this. He, he, now, if you just said, are you Catholic? He'd say, well, of course, I'm part of the one true universal church, of course, why, you know, he, would, he didn't think in terms of anything else. But if you look at his, it's not the way we think about Catholic. For example, most of his workers, his co-workers were married. And, and he did have celibate priests and celibate nuns who were part of his bands that they would send out, but they weren't necessarily in leadership. Often it was a, a married lay person who was actually in leadership of the little community. We'll, we'll try to talk more about that. Now, he was Irish in the sense that he buried his heart in Ireland. Um, and I mean, he went to Ireland and he, be, he became Irish. And he reminds me of David Livingston. This is the, the, the uh, monument to David Livingston's heart. If you, if you actually go to England in Westminster Cathedral, the missionary David Livingston, he's one of the earliest missionaries to Africa, um, is buried there in a, in a place of honor where kings and the most powerful people, the most famous po uh, British writers and poets are buried. He's buried there. They, they bury them under the floor, and so there's a plaque on the floor to him. And I, I love going there, and I always point out to the people I'm with, I say, this, this, I want, this is the one I want to say. He, see, he's my hero, David Livingston. I said, but there's, there's one part of him that's not here. His heart isn't here. Before he died, he instructed the Afri his African co-workers um, to remove my heart and bury it in Africa before you take my body back to England. And so this is where his heart is buried, under the Mubundu tree in Africa. And uh, it's interesting, they tell the story that, that Queen Victoria actually sent a reef to be buried in the grave with him. So there's a reef from Queen Victoria that was buried with David Livingston. And his African attendant who had helped bring back his body, um, tried to, they had to restrain him from throwing himself into the grave to be buried with him. That was the level of loyalty and devotion. And if we are going to be missionaries, the reason I throw this in, I re realize it's a digression from talking about Patrick, but if we are going to be successful missionaries, I'm going to be sharing with you principles and paradigms, but I don't want to give the impression that that's what is going to create a people movement to Christ. That's what's going to win a nation. You've got to be willing to bury your heart in Africa or bury your heart in Ireland or bury your heart in the culture that's outside the walls of the church. Okay. So Patrick lived from uh, 390 to 460. Those are approximate dates. Um, he was, like I said, he was British and culturally Roman. He was not Celtic Irish. He, he probably ethnically was Celtic, but it, it, he wasn't Celtic in, the, in that sense. Um, he was a Roman. Um, he was kidnapped when he was 16 and taken to Ireland and lived as a slave for, I don't know, six or seven years. And uh, it's very interesting. He, he lived there as a slave. He, uh, he was a shepherd boy. They had him just tending flocks. And so he found, literally found God and encountered God out under the stars tending the flocks. And that reminds me a lot of, of the boy Jesus uh, uh, and, and that natural, what I would call natural spirituality that we see all through the Psalms, where, where, you know, in the Psalms over and over you have the night sky looking up at the stars. When I behold the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? And that, that, that sense of the presence of God that, that the shepherd boy David um, had 
by, by connecting with God out there under the stars. And that's what we see happening with Patrick. And he actually tells the story how he, he began to, he, to have a, this sense of awe and fear of the presence of God continually. And he began to pray more and more frequently till he was praying hundreds of times a day, which when you're praying hundreds of times a day, it means it's, it's becoming a continual part of your inner voice is that you're just in the presence, you're practicing the presence of God. Um, and then there was a supernatural deliverance. Uh, but the other thing that happened besides finding God is he found the Celtic people. He found the Irish. He, he came to love them. He learned their language. He got their culture, which the Romans didn't get. And, but he got Celtic culture, which was very, very different, and, and actually loved it and loved the Celtic people. And, uh, and then there was a supernatural deliverance. He was instructed in a dream um, to get up early, your ship is ready, go to the coast. And so he did. He got up early, hiked all the way to the coast, and sure enough, there was a ship waiting that took him back to safety. And we don't know much about the next period of his life. He probably got some sort of instruction in a monastery somewhere. We don't know. Um, but what we do know is that he became the first missionary bishop um, and actually had a, a Macedonian call back to Ireland. An angel appears to him. Um, this is his own writings. He describes an angel named Victor appears to him and, uh, and presents him with letters from his Irish captors. And says, and, and as he reads the letters, he starts to hear their voices, kind of like an old movie when they'd read the letters and they'd hear the voice. And it says, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us again. And uh, so he did that. So in 432, somewhere around there, he returns to Ireland with an apostolic band. Um, the first thing I want to say about Patrick's success is he wasn't a lone ranger. In, the, in Protestant evangelical circles, we, we for many years had this idea of the missionary couple that is sent out. And even in our churches, it was the, uh, uh, you know, Joshua was talking to, us, talking to us about the man of God model. You know, you're the man of God, you hear from God, you lead us. Um, that wasn't the model. Now, Patrick was a powerful man of God and no doubt had the loyalty and, and honor and respect of, of the people he led, but he worked in bands, in these teams, these missionary bands that would, would go out and form and model the, the principles of the gospel. Um, but he became the, the first apostolic bishop in the Catholic Church. They actually appointed him. And uh, we've, we just we read that. I'm going to keep moving here. So what do we need to know? Why was this such a big deal to send? You know, it's like, okay, he was a missionary. No, it was a big deal. Um, they were uncivilized. Now, I've put that in scare quotes, but that would, have, that would have just seemed like the objective reality to a Roman of that time. They were uncivilized. They were illiterate. They didn't know the important things. Now, what that meant was they weren't Romanized, and what that meant was they weren't ready for the gospel. Um, by 400 AD, the Roman church had come to think that Roman culture was essential to the gospel. And that Roman culture first had to civilize before the, the church could Christianize. Now, to us, that's so obviously wrong. That ro why, how did you get Roman culture synonymous with Christian principles and Christian, the kingdom of God? Well, it's happened before and it's happened since. Okay? Um, I think future generations will look and I think we're already beginning to realize, why did we think that Western civilization was so thoroughly and perfectly and fully Christian? Why do we think American culture is so perfectly and thoroughly Christian? Um, but they did, that's the way they thought, that, you, that a people was not ready for the gospel until they had been civilized. Now, there was a practical side of that too, um, because they were also violent. Now, 
that the, the Celts, that Ireland was not the only place where the Celts were. They had been driven back all the way by the Romans, all the way across Western Europe. And Ireland was their last stronghold, really. Um, and there had never been a Roman colony, never been, the Romans hadn't even tried to invade Ireland. It's just like, you can have it, we're leaving you alone. Um, because these guys would come charging into battle, buck naked, screaming, and often painted blue. Now, I'm really disappointed this morning because I know that you guys believe in drama, and I really wanted Jason to dramatize this for us this morning. And, but I, I kind of I chickened out in asking him, and so I actually, I, this, is, this part's true, I actually asked his wife if she had a picture of him in a bathing suit, I was gonna Photoshop it. Um, but she didn't, and so, so we don't have it. I just thought it would add it a lot if he had come screaming in, painted blue, buck naked. And you know, to the pure, all things are pure. Um, and I don't think, just to be honest, Jason, I don't think it, you would have tempted anybody, but that's another point. Um, so, I mean, I'm at the blue, that's what I was talking about. Um, so, these guys were wild men. Now, now, the other part of it is that they're being naked and painting themselves blue, they, it was actually a spiritual thing. It wasn't just that they were wild and uncivilized, it was actually big medicine, it was sorcery. And they believed that it protected them and it, it enlisted uh, spiritual powers on their behalf in battle. And maybe it did, I don't know. Uh, but it freaked out the Romans, okay? Um, passionate, they, weren't, they were passionate, like that's one example, but they were just passionate all the time. They were very, and the Celtic people today are very passionate people. And they're very imaginative people and they're very emotional. And all of those things were things that the Roman culture didn't trust because the emotions were to be controlled, and even Roman Christianity. So Augustine very much believed in suppressing the emotions. In Augustine's confessions, he actually confesses the sin that he cried when his mother died. He confesses that as a sin, that if he had been more, see, he asks God forgiveness. If I had been more strong, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have cried when my mother died. That, that's that Roman ethos that you suppress the emotions. The Celts were completely different than that. And they were pagan, so they were animists, they worshiped, nature and the spirits in nature, and they were controlled by an elite of druid sorcerers who practiced human sacrifice. So this was big medicine, this was big, big mojo, right? I don't know, however you want to say it. There was real counterfeit spiritual power um, going on here. So what was Patrick's strategy? Um, he appreciated Celtic culture, and that's got to be the first step for us. We have to love the culture we're going to. We have to get it. We have to somehow get inside their heads and understand, that doesn't mean we have to agree with every detail, because Patrick certainly didn't. But if we're going to transform culture, we've got to do it from the inside. We've got to get it. We've got to understand it. Um, and, and part of that is just love, because culture isn't just an abstract thing. Culture is a corporate expression of that part of us that's made in the image of God. And, and just like each individual needs to be redeemed, um, cultures need to be redeemed. But just like each individual is valuable, Cultures are valuable because that's what we, what we create together with that part of us that's made in the image of God. Um, he found redemptive analogies, or I like to use the phrase uh, uh, kingdom aspirations. What is it in, in the culture you're trying to reach? What is it that they most desire that can be best provided or answered by the kingdom of God? There's something in that culture. There's a hunger in their heart. There's a desire. There's a quest. There's a holy grail, so to speak, for them 
that only the gospel can, can, can reach. Now, this isn't just a, a, like a, a solving a puzzle. This is actually a, a faith step that we believe that God has gotten there before us. A lot of missionaries made the mistake of thinking that, they were, that God arrived with them. When, when we arrived in 1992 to Azerbaijan, God was already there and working and had been working. And, and we needed to discern what he was doing and cooperate with that. And so in our culture, the, the foreign culture that's all around us, outside the walls of this church, there are things that they are hungry for that only the gospel can truly fulfill. And we need to find what those things are, those kingdom aspirations. Um, Patrick did not impose Roman culture, and partly because he was so far on the fringe of the Roman Empire and the Roman church, he was able to operate outside of the way they thought and, and operated. He trusted the seed. Now, this isn't his phrase. This is a, my phrase. This is a man who mentored us in church planting in the Muslim world. Um, would, it was, almost became kind of a mantra. He said, trust the seed. In other words, when you plant a seed, you don't, when it starts to sprout, you don't grab the leaves and start stretching and pulling on them, or you don't pull it to make it tall. You trust the seed, you plant it in the, in the native soil, and you trust the seed to produce, that it has life in it, it has order in it, it has, it's going to grow, it has structure in it that is going to express itself in the way it needs to be expressed. And we just trust that. Don't, get, don't intervene and harm the, the life of, of that thing, which what we're talking about is the, whether we're talking church planting or in an individual's life planting that seed. Plant the seed, but also trust that that seed has power and order in it that's, that's beyond anything we can do. Um, Patrick also connected the gospel with their love of creation. Now, we're afraid of this, and, and Roman Christianity would have been afraid of this. Roman Christianity, this was um, at the time when, when uh, Augustine had just lived and, his, and Augustine um, uh, infused Platonic philosophy into the church. And then we could talk about why he felt that was a good thing to do. And actually, I think in some ways it was all right that he did it. it, was, it he was in dialogue with his culture. But what it meant is uh, Roman Christianity, of which we are a part, you know, we think we're in reaction against Rome as Protestants, but we're a branch of Rome, okay? We think Augustine is in your head. And what that means is Plato's in your head. And so we think about God in, this, in, in platonic terms. And, um, and so we really get nervous about animism or pantheism. We get nervous about people that venerate saying that there's anything spiritual in nature. Um, and I just think it's unbiblical. I think biblically, you know, Jesus rebuked a storm. Okay, he rebuked it just in the same vocabulary that he used to rebuke demons. Okay, he rebuked it as a spiritual evil. And, and uh, so, uh, but, so Patrick, he didn't get freaked out by animism. He, he, he came in there and he connected um, his message with the beauty of creation and, and modeled that for them. Okay, um, Patrick's bands opposed sorcery but they didn't oppose sorcery with preaching. They didn't forbid sorcery and forbid animism. They met it on its own terms, 
and, and beat, beat it at its own game with what, we, what in mission, modern missions we call power encounter. Power encounter is when you bring the power of Jesus and you demonstrate that the power of Jesus is superior to whatever spiritual power was there before, Jesus, before you got there with the message of Jesus and his kingdom. Okay, and, and missionaries have made the mistake, I, I made the mistake, I remember sitting with a, a Muslim lady and she began telling me about the evil eye. And I remember uh, she, she said, you know, you really need, your, you need to, the evil eye is the idea that if you look with envy on something, you put a curse on it. And, and now you, that sounds really weird and they have these little charms to ward off the evil eye. Um, and actually, um, it'll freak you out for me to tell you this, but Jesus and Moses both believed in the evil eye. I can prove it to you, but I won't do that now because I'm out of time. Um, you know, Jesus said, if your eye is evil, everything in you is dark. In the context, he's talking about greed and envy. He's talking about the evil eye. Um, and so anyway, they believe in the evil eye, that it puts a curse on you, and so they wear these, these charms to ward off the evil eye. And she was trying to get me to accept a charm to put on our kids. The best, she, a very positive, she had a good motive, and I wasn't going to put this demonic thing on my kid, this superstitious thing, and I said, I just look, I kind of with a small a, a smile, I said, you know, we, we, we really don't believe in that. And, and I instantly felt this rebuke of the Holy Spirit that said, you answered that as a naturalistic American, you didn't answer that as a Christian. And I thought about it, I realized, no, my answer should have been Jesus, in the name of Jesus, has power to protect us from every demonic evil force. That should have been my answer, a supernatural answer. But I answered as a naturalistic, enlightenment Westerner, okay? Um, Patrick didn't do that. He, he, uh, he embraced the opportunity for power encounters. So they healed the sick, they cast out demons, they relied on supernatural guidance, and they offered the power of blessing. And I want to encourage you, the most basic form of power encounter is is to discern a felt need. Remember we said a felt need is whatever they think they need. Okay, they may, if they're out of a job, they may think they need a job, that that's the most important thing. Um, whatever they think, if they're sick, they're probably gonna think that's the most important. If their child is sick, that they're gonna think, if they're having nightmares and they can't sleep, they might think that's the most important need. The most basic level of power encounter is not that you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a warlock and you know, but just the most basic level of power encounter is you hear of a felt need and you offer to pray for that in the name of Jesus and just pray for them. Um, this, I, this is the best way to evangelize Muslims. Don't get in theological arguments with Muslims. Just discern this felt need and offer to pray for them in the name of Jesus. In all my time in the Muslim world, only once was I turned down by some, when I offered to pray for somebody in the name of Jesus. Um, that's power encounter. And that's what Patrick did. So I'm out of time, but I want to I impart to you a blessing. There's more principles. You can get this book if you want, The Celtic Way of Evangelism. There's so much stuff in there. Um, but I want to impart to you a heart, a missionary heart, to reach the foreign country outside your church. Whether, and I don't just mean the physical walls, but the community, the, the larger community of the church. To get back into the conversation. And, and I, again, I know I'm speaking to people who are already doing that. Um, but I also want to offer an impartation specifically for the apostolic work of learning a new language, learning a new culture, learning a new worldview. You know, there was a book years ago about worldview that was called The, the Universe Next Door. And most of our friends and neighbors live in the universe next door. They live in a very different universe. That they think about their world and their universe differently than we do. And you might be surprised how many things they already agree with you 
How many parts of the gospel, they're already in agreement. You've got lots of starting points. Um, but you'll also find out that certain things that you assumed are true, they don't assume are true. And you have to learn the language. You have to learn the patterns of their thought. You have to learn what's important to them. You have to learn the felt needs. So let me just pray for you. So if you, um, if you just want to receive this, just stand up and just kind of take a, a receptive posture. I like to just stand with my hands open. To me, it just means my hands are empty. I need something. And God only you can supply it. And just, uh, just even as I'm speaking to myself currently. Blah, 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 blah. There I am. Just even as he was getting ready to release that blessing, I, I felt like uh, just prompted by the Holy Spirit. Let's take hands and receive this as a people. Beautiful. So just everybody is holding hands. I want us all to connect. That's a picture I got. And then I'm going to let Beautiful. Nathan, he and I, will, he'll lay hands on me on behalf of us. But let's receive Good. that together. Beautiful. So just, yeah, just connect up though. Everybody connected. No, there's breaks. Mm. I'm saying we're holding hands. That's the picture I felt like yeah. the Lord's saying. We're con everybody's connected. Is everybody connected? Beautiful. All right. And, and I just want to say that's, a, that's really beautiful. Um, one of the distinctives if, is you go to look at the distinctives between Patrick's Celtic model and, and that, that model that he initiated that then went on to evangelize uh, Western Europe is it, it, as opposed to the Roman model. Is the Roman, Roman model, you withdrew from society to connect vertically with God. And the Celtic model was much more communal. It was, it was bands and communities um, that were reaching out, not withdrawing from their society to be pure, but, but, but modeling the kingdom in the midst of their society, a lived message of the gospel, and, and a spoken message together, that, and the two reinforcing one another. But it was very communal. Part of what, what brought people to Christ was not just the preaching of the gospel, but the modeling of Christian community. So, Father God, Lord, you won our civilization to you. We thank you for every inheritance we have as Western Christians. We thank, thank you for the inheritance we have through the Celtic movement that we weren't even aware of. And Father, we also bring to you our culture, Lord, that looks to us almost as scary as naked blue men running at us to kill us, Lord. It looks scary to us. It looks really hard. But Lord, you see the perfect candidates for the good news. You see a culture that's ripe and with so many points of connection for the, for the full, uh, a full-bodied presentation of the good news. And so, Lord Jesus, we offer ourselves to be a missionary band, Lord. And Lord, I just, as one who's, who's uh, worked to bring the good news to, to a Muslim people group, um, and Lord, seeing your, your, the, the power of that seed planted even in a place that seems resistant. Um, Lord, I just impart faith and expectation and vision to this company of believers, this apostolic band. And Holy Spirit, I just, I pray that there would be new vision a new heart, Lord, that they would have Patrick's heart and Paul's heart and the heart of Jesus that, that didn't grasp, grasp onto divinity but emptied himself to come and be a servant among us. So, Lord, we ask for the impartation of that heart and a grace to get into the conversation, Lord, to open the doors, to, to live and model the good news um, in the midst of a culture who's who's forgotten who you are 
and doesn't understand uh, who we are as your people. So Holy Spirit, I just release that impartation in Jesus' name. And Lord, I bless this company to be an apostolic company in their city and in their region. And that, Lord, I bless this model to be reproduced. That they would, would uh, create together a model that many would imitate in many places and that it would bear much fruit for heaven. Amen.